The year is 1974. Two different men who both profess to know Christ are taking their lives down very, very different paths. One has been a very public figure. He's the special counsel to the sitting president. He's powerful, cunning, and feared by many. But at this moment, he's walking through the gates of an Alabama prison. The other man isn't well known. He's sitting on an airplane, flying to Cambodia, sent out by the Christian and Missionary Alliance so that he could teach God's word in that country. He would continue to grow as a staunch defender of Christian doctrine for another 50 years. Today, both of these men are dead. One has a legacy that has been shattered by incriminating accusations, validated wrongdoing, and significant damage done to the name of Christ. The other has created a legacy of faithfulness to God's word and a life which glorified God and his grace to mankind. Friends, if you're here today and wonder why so many Christians do strive to live good and right lives, the book of Titus will answer your questions. Our world today says that there's a plethora of reasons for why we live well. Many of them, though, are simply based in human pragmatism or superstition. We help the poor because it helps our karma, because it makes us feel good, or because we get accolades from the world around us. But Paul's argument in the book of Titus is that our actions aren't grounded on this earth, but rather the Christian's reason for action comes from something far more greater than any temporal or mortal philosophy. In the book of Titus, Paul is writing to his son in the faith to encourage him in his work in Crete. The book was likely written as a response from a letter that Titus sent to Paul and instructs Titus how to establish and teach the church in Crete with many practical outworkings of theology and doctrine. As Christians, we do often look to scripture to give us practical applications for how to live, but we can oftentimes miss what's clearly stated on the pages. Paul makes a few statements which outline the theme of the book of Titus. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says to Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set and order what is lacking and appoint elders. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Speak those things which are proper for sound doctrine. And in the following paragraphs, he gives a multitude of commands to a wide uh, arrangement of people, to older men, older women, younger men, younger uh, women, and to slaves. His emphasis in the book is captured... And chapter 2, verse 5, where he writes that the word of God may not be reviled. And verse 8, so that the opponents may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say of you. And verse 10, that in everything you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Paul is writing to Titus to tell him that his purpose is to establish elders who will hold to the word of God and the person of God above everything else. Their teaching must be in line with what Scripture says, and they must instruct Christians everywhere to live lives that are above reproach. Paul repeatedly emphasizes the needs for Christians to live, act, talk, and think in a way that no one can levy a charge against us as we try to glorify God's word and character. The Westminster Shorter Catechism encapsulates Paul's argument in their first question, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Paul rests his case in the book of Titus In chapter 3, verse 14, where he says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help in cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. 
His whole argument of this book, though, climaxes in this glorious doxology of chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. His argument and thrust of this passage is that the fundamental basis for good works as a Christian is the grace of God which has saved you, is saving you, and will save you. My aim this morning is to help us understand God's grace more fully. My outline today will be two points, the purpose of grace and the power of grace. The purpose of grace. As outlined in Titus, the purpose of grace is threefold. It saves, it shows, and it satisfies. The first purpose of grace, then, is to save. In verse 11, Paul says the grace of God has brought salvation to all men. He's not declaring here that all men will be saved, because elsewhere in Scripture, Paul constantly affirms that judgment will actually come to those who reject Christ. But what he is saying is that all mankind is eligible to receive God's grace. Many of you here today know that God's grace is what saves you, but we oftentimes struggle with thinking that what we do, doing good things, tithing, caring for the homeless, etc., are what bring us favor with God. Be encouraged by what Paul writes here. It is not your works that have done anything. The things you desire to do that are good are a result of God's grace. They are not the prerequisite for God's grace. If you're here today and don't understand what I mean when I talk about salvation and justification, then what I'm saying is especially for you. Have you sought out other philosophies, ways, or religions to have favor with God, to set at peace your heart and your mind? Friend, you too can know the grace of God that brings salvation. Turn back, to me, uh, turn back with me to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, where Paul summarizes the gospel with these words. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I declare to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the basic understanding of salvation. We don't trust in ourselves but we trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, who came down from heaven, lived a perfect life, died a sinless death, and in his resurrection demonstrated his power over death and sin. Friends, we also believe that one day Jesus Christ is going to return in glory and call his people home. And in that moment, he will also give a final judgment on all creation and all mankind. If you have not been the benefactor of his grace, you will receive eternal punishment. But if you have received his grace, you will receive the eternal reward of his presence forever. This, then, is the most important aspect of grace, the action that saves men. The implicit command is to repent and trust the grace of God. The salvation is offered to everyone because there is a universal need for being saved from God's just wrath against sin. So, friend, if you do not know the Son of God, Repent of your errors and come to him. Having received salvation, then grace does a second thing. It shows us. In verse 12, we read that the grace of God trains us. It shows us how to live in this world. In his epistles, Paul oftentimes emphasizes the intrinsic link between salvation and action. At conversion, we become justified or legally made right before God. But every believer, from that moment of first belief, begins the process of sanctification, or being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. 
Paul says back in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Any other interpretation of salvation is an error. You cannot have salvation and not have sanctification. If you are redeemed by Christ, your life will show progress and holiness. You cannot know Christ and continue in your old sins. In the book of Romans, again, chapter 6, verses 15 to 19, we read, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Paul makes it clear in Romans and he's making the same point, just in fewer words, in Titus. Grace goes beyond justification. Grace teaches us. Specifically, in the book of Titus, Paul explains that God teaches us five things. First, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and then to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Paul's argument is that the basis for right living as a Christian is founded in the grace of God that has saved us. So God's grace does more than just give us salvation. It disciplines, teaches, and corrects us. Paul also emphasizes that this is done in the present age. The things we are taught are for the here and now, because when Christ comes back and takes us to glory, we'll be with him in a place that has no more sin or imperfection. But now, here in this present age, on this earth, we need to be taught. Furthermore, it's in this present age and not a future age. We're not to put off renouncing sin and living good lives until later. The Christian is to do this now, in this moment, and throughout the duration of our time on earth. What does it mean to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? Imagine renouncing your citizenship in the United States. If you chose to, you would turn your back on your own people, maybe even your own family, to go become part of a new people. That is the severity of this statement. Back in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, Paul wrote, But our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. When you receive God's grace, you take on a new citizenship. You must renounce your old life that is full of ungodliness and worldly passion. There is no dual citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Ungodliness are those things that are impious or irreverent. They affront God's revealed word and who he is. We must renounce those things. In the book of 1 John, chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, the apostle there writes using similar phrases, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The passions of Titus and the desires of 1 John are the same root word, and combined with the word worldly, they're not referring to a specific desire, passion, but rather to the system of the world. Paul and the Apostle John are both saying the same thing. 
that we renounce the way the world works. It could be religious philosophies, acquisitions of wealth, views on sexuality, politics, etc. Grace teaches us as Christians to put behind us the way we used to live when we were a part of the world system. We no longer live that way because it is in direct conflict with who God is and God's ways. We no longer live in rebellion against him, and we can no longer live that way. I think, importantly, this also isn't the same as saying we reject creation. There are those who have said that the created order is all evil and spiritual is good, but that isn't true. We have to go back to Genesis and remember that when God created everything, he created a perfect world that he was well-pleased in. And his objective that we see throughout all of Scripture is to fully redeem all of creation. So we don't reject creation. We reject the way the world works in conflict with God. Having said what to renounce, ungodliness, unworldly passions, Paul now gives us the positive side of grace's instruction. It teaches us to do three things here. It teaches us to live self-controlled, uprightly, and godly lives. Each word carries its own unique meaning. The word self-controlled implies how we're to live our own personal lives, what we think, what we hope for, what we desire, and how we live. Other translations are to live sensibly or with a sound mind. In contrast to living in the manner of the world, which says, gratify all your own desires, follow your heart, do what makes you feel good, grace actually teaches us the opposite. Live with self-control. Deny yourself the things that are not good, that are contrary to God's law and are harmful. Grace also teaches us to live uprightly. The idea of uprightly is how we live in horizontal relationship with those around us. The idea here, again, is not that we are working in our own effort to do good things for those around us so that we earn favor with God, but rather we have been redeemed by God's grace and therefore desire to live well with others. A common complaint against Christianity and I think oftentimes Reformed theology is an allegation that it is too lofty and practical and doesn't teach us how to live. But that argument falls apart in the face of Paul's writing. Do you desire to know what it means to live uprightly? Go back and read the whole book of Titus. In chapter 2, which begins, teach in accordance with sound doctrine, Paul writes, following that, very clear and poignant practice. Teach the older men to be self-controlled, reverent, patient, older women, reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, that they teach the younger women, and the list continues. Turn over to chapter 3. Do you desire to know how to engage with our society? Verse 1 remind, says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be, every good, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, and to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Christian, the complaint that the scripture isn't applicable is because the reader often doesn't want to apply what they read. Is it easy to be self-controlled and reverent, to not slander? Does anyone really like to be submissive to rulers and authorities? Brother and sister, if you read these pages and say there's no application of theology, that you have nothing to learn and the Bible has nothing practical for you, then consider your own heart, because it is likely you have not learned to renounce this world system. Seek God's instructions through the workings of grace. Friend, if you hear this exhortation to put off irreverence, to put on 
good living as burdensome, heavy, and impossible, then understand that it is without the grace of God. Paul writes in chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, But when the kindness and loving goodness of our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Come to him in repentance and be instructed by his kindness. Finally, God's grace teaches us to live in a godly manner. Just as self-controlled and upright living is the antidote to a life lived within the realm of worldly passions, living a godly life is the antidote to ungodliness. In contrast to those things which are irreverent and against God, it is actually piousness, reverence, and respect for the person of God and the word of God. Our postmodern world rejects the idea that there's a singular truth that gives us a basis for how we live. But in renunciation to this lie, a godly life is one which sees God in everything, as the source of everything, and as the foundation for everything. We would do well to remember Paul's earlier statements in chapter 2, where he reminds Christians to live in a way that the word of God may not be blasphemed, that an opponent may be ashamed having nothing evil to say of you, that the Christian might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Brothers and sisters, God's grace draws us to him. Its purpose is not to save you from the consequence of sin so that you can fulfill carnal and sinful passions and desires. Rather, his grace teaches us to reject anything which puts us in lockstep with the world system. Secondly, his purpose is to make his person and work beautiful to a watching world by teaching you to live self-controlled, and your thoughts, desires, and actions. To treat your horizontal relationships in a manner which demonstrates God's character and to place yourselves before God in humility and reverence. Our natural man will balk at these imperatives. But if you do not have an inner man renewed by the Spirit, willing to be taught by the grace of God, then you would do well to go before God in repentance and draw near to him. Finally, Paul explains one more purpose of grace. In this present age, it serves to save us and then to show us. But verse 13 expounds us on another component of grace's wonder. Not only does grace bring us into a right relationship here, but it causes us to wait for God's glorious return, which is our blessed hope. This is grace's third and final purpose, to satisfy us. The Christian is not one who has a fickle hope. Paul's language here of waiting for our blessed hope is emphasizing a certainty. We're not waiting in hope like a child hopes to get a bike or a PlayStation for Christmas. No, this is the hope of the bride before the wedding, the certainty of the joy of the union, which, though not yet, is about to be. In Romans 8, Paul uses similar language, and he writes, starting in verse 29, For those whom he, Christ, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And this passage from Romans, Paul is saying that God has predestined us to be changed into the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the sanctification that Paul has spoken of in Titus. 
It is accomplished by grace, teaching us to renounce the world system and live in a godly manner. But Paul further emphasizes the hope of the resurrection when he says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you're new to your understanding of Christian theology, glorification is what we consider the final step of salvation. It happens when Christ returns and redeems all of creation. It is then that all things are made right and we are without sin and death. Paul's argument from Romans 8 is in the past tense. Those who are saved are glorified. Friends, the glorification of the believer is so certain that it is in effect a complete action, though it has yet to take place. When we go back and look at Titus, we see that Paul is expressing this same hope. Our hope is the glorious return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul makes it clear here as well that Jesus Christ is God. Such a wonderful and simple statement that in a few words gives us the promise of our Savior's return and also creates the foundation of our hope that he is the very God of creation. Friends, Paul's main argument in the book of Titus is summed up well in verses 11 to 13. God's grace has saved us. And because he has brought us from death to life, we are instructed by grace how to live. One cannot claim Christ as Savior and then have a life which doesn't reflect his nature and character. Romans says that we are to be made into Christ's image. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here in Titus as well. God's word takes no prisoners regarding this. We belong to Christ, and right living is the yoke of our possession and actually the glory of our freedom in Christ. And as we do this, we wait for his return, which will be our glorious satisfaction as we are in the eternal presence of Jesus Christ without any more sin. This brings us to our second point, the power of grace. In verse 14, we see the power of grace displayed in two ways, the perishing of Christ and the possession of Christ. First, in the perishing of Christ. There are many institutions, philosophies, religious, uh, and religions that express an ability to offer us hope. But when push comes to shove, all they can really give us is probably some rewashed and reused idea that some other man came up with. It's just their wisdom, their book they're trying to sell you, or some philosophy from some man who's already dead. But Christianity stands distinct. Our hope isn't found in ourselves. It's not found in your family. It's not found in the institutions around you. No, we don't look to the wisdom of this broken and temporal world, friends. Rather, we have Christ. Paul says that Christ gave himself for us. He declared his divinity earlier, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and now he says that this Christ, the very God of the universe, gave himself for us as the offering for our sin. We can't buy our way into God's kingdom, but we need something because all humanity has incurred a debt from sin that we are helpless to repay. The end of this sin is death and separation from God. But God in his kindness and goodness sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay this debt. And Jesus humbled himself, becoming a man so that he could pay the ransom for our sin. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says of himself, for even the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, excuse me, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ's work and intent was to ransom his people. 
Paul in Titus says that he came to redeem. These words have very similar meanings. The idea of both is that of being bought back, of being repurchased. Christ has come back, and he has bought back mankind from slavery to sin. This purchasing act of grace and the perishing of Christ leads us to the second defining power of grace, which is the possession of Christ. Paul says in verse 14 that God's intent was to purify for himself a people for his own possession, or a special people. Back in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, while establishing his covenant with the people of Israel, God said to Moses, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And recognizing the fulfillment of that promise after the resurrection of Christ, Peter, the great apostle of Jesus Christ, writes to the church, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Friends, this power of grace that saves you, shows you how to live, and satisfies you, is found not in anything on this earth, but in the person of Jesus Christ. We can't look anywhere else. In his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ bought a people for himself. We are his possession. He is our Lord and Master. We cannot have redemption and not also take Christ. If you seek to live a good life but do not have the person of Christ, you're in great danger. If you will not have Christ and be his possession, then you do not have the power of Christ working in you through grace. There is only one person who can save you, who can show you how to live and satisfy you for now and all eternity. In verse 14, Paul says that the substance of our hope is not found in us or other men, but in the person of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to buy us back from sin, to make us his own people so that we can be holy and pure to do good works, and to make his gospel known. Paul's point here is clear. The foundation for the life of a Christian being distinct from the world is not found in us. Rather, it is because of the grace of God which has saved us. David Platt wrote, our works are, not the, natu- excuse me, our works are the natural response to God's grace. Zeal for him becomes our daily desire, having been prepared by him for this kind of life. Grace teaches us who is Lord, and it empowers us to serve him as Lord. Friend, you sit here today and wonder how it is possible to renounce the citizenship of this world system and take on God's citizenship. It is impossible to do good and earn your way into the kingdom of God. Don't overlook that very short statement in the center of verse 14. Christ is seeking to purify for himself a special people. You cannot work your way to God's kingdom, but instead you must accept the grace which God is offering, the grace to make you his possession.
Before we close today, I want to give two warnings to how we can misapply this text. A philosophy that was impacting much of the Christian church in Paul's day and at the church in Crete was Gnosticism. A very simple and brief component of their religious doctrine was that the material world was evil and the spiritual was good. This philosophy is still alive and well, and when we apply this, we can oftentimes think that as so long as we do those things that are spiritual, we can live in any way we want. But God's grace teaches us that we have to live good lives. We cannot immerse ourselves in an ocean of sin and still receive God's grace. We can't and continue in sin just because God's kindness is great. In the book of Romans, chapter 6, Paul answers this idea when he says, What shall we say? Will we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live any longer in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are therefore buried with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, we also might walk in newness of life. Christian, if you have been changed by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, then you can no longer walk the way the world walks, but you must walk in a new life that grace has shown you. The second misapplication takes the opposite action. Instead of thinking we have freedom to live as we please because of God's grace, it is the idea that we have to do good works to earn further grace with God. But God's word repeatedly states that works are the outflow of a heart changed by grace. They are not the catalyst for grace. Grace is the catalyst for works. When we approach life from the idea that we have to earn favor, we forget that there is nothing good in us at all. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 64 of his book wrote, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are a polluted garment. When you do good works to earn God's favor, you miss the point and maybe have missed his grace. Your salvation is not found or kept by your works. It is found and kept by our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. His selfless act of love has given us access to God's righteousness because Jesus Christ has taken on himself our sins. If you've been sitting here wondering who the two men in the beginning of this sermon were, I'll tell you now. The second man in the story who became a prolific teacher for five decades was Rabbi Zacharias. For nearly 50 years, he was hailed and recognized as a bastion of Christian apologetics. But in his final years in death, it became apparent he didn't understand grace. He preached a message he did not believe, lived a life untouched by God's grace, and demonstrated he didn't know God. In contrast, the other man was Chuck Colson. He came to saving faith in Christ shortly before going to prison, and because of knowing and experiencing God's forgiveness, actually pled guilty to all the charges he was accused of. While in prison, he saw the great need for all of mankind to know Christ. He saw that he had to take action. And so he started the ministry which has impacted the lives of millions. The grace of God is sufficient to take anyone, no matter their sin, and to bring them to Christ. Paul declares that grace is meant to redeem to Christ a people for his own possession. Chuck Colson stands as an example of someone who was brought to Christ, to, who understood that he was no longer his own, that he belonged wholesale to God, 
to be his worker, servant, and slave. He understood what Paul teaches in this book, that grace will save you, that grace will show you how to live, and that grace will satisfy you. And brothers and sisters, our confidence is not rooted in us. It is not rooted in our works, our wealth, our capacity to do good. It is rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us so that we would be his special people. One theologian wrote, For this reason does the grace of God appear to the sinner, that he may forsake darkness and walk in the light. Friends, are you sitting on the fence? Are you unsure if you believe, or maybe you just don't want to believe? The call of this passage is clear and direct. Repent of your sin and receive the grace of God which brings salvation. Do you profess to know Christ, but you're living in a way which is contrary to his word and dishonors him? Be taught by God's kindness. Stop dishonoring your Lord. Renounce the world's system and take on the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, are you faithfully following the word of God? Continue in it. Encourage others also to fall upon the grace of God and live like Christians. Pronounce the call of this book. Adorn God's gospel and learn to devote yourselves to good works. Let's pray.